Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and reading again verses 15 to 20. Colossians 1 from verse 15. We read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In his book, The Hope of Glory, Sam Storms writes, There is no question as profound or fundamental or eternally significant as the one so many have asked before. Who is this man, Jesus of Nazareth? On your answer to that question hangs suspended all issues of life and death, good and evil, truth and falsehood, heaven and hell. This morning we're going to consider these magnificent verses that speak of the supremacy of Christ from Colossians 1 as we prepare to baptise Mark and Charlie into the life of our congregation. And I hope that these verses will be an encouragement to DJ and to Marianne and to Lisa, but also to every person who's here today. We're going to look at them under two headings, the supremacy of Christ in creation and then the supremacy of Christ in salvation. First, the supremacy of Christ in creation. Look at verses 15 to 17. In these verses, Paul focuses on the supremacy of Christ in creation. Now, before proceeding, we can note the context. This is a letter that has come from the Apostle Paul. He is writing to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, a city in Asia that was situated in the Lycus River. He's writing in about 62 AD while imprisoned in Rome. And the reason why he's writing is to address a view that had crept into the Colossian church that was diminishing the person and work of Christ. This teaching focused on visions. It focused on mystical experiences as a, as a way of knowing spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. And Paul is writing to the Colossians to tell them that Jesus is all they need when it comes to living the Christian life. Jesus is all they need when it comes to spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. And in verses 1 to 14, Paul begins the letter by telling the Colossians why he's thankful for them and what he's praying for them. And as he does so, he speaks to them about God the Father delivering them from the domain of darkness and transferring them into the kingdom of his beloved son. And upon mentioning this beloved son, Paul starts singing the praises of Christ in verses 15 to 20. What we need to realize, friends, is that Colossians 1, 15 to 20, is a hymn. It is a hymn that is just praising Christ. As some suggest that Paul is uh, quoting a hymn that was popular at the time, Others suggest that Paul is composing a hymn himself. Either way, we are given this privilege of hearing Paul in worship. Hearing Paul praising the name of Jesus. 
And in verses 15 and 16, Paul sings about Christ and creation. He starts by claiming that Christ is the image of the invisible God, beginning of verse 15. According to both the Old and New Testaments, no one has ever seen God. But here Paul refers to Christ as the image of the invisible God. He is saying that the very nature, the very character of God have been perfectly displayed in Christ. He's saying that in Christ, the invisible has been made visible. And he continues by claiming that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Verse 15 again. Now this doesn't mean that he's the first created being. If you go to Psalm 89, King David is described as being God's firstborn, meaning the highest of the kings of the earth. And Paul is using the language of firstborn in the same way as he writes about Christ. He's saying that Christ has a unique position, an unparalleled position in creation. He stands over creation as the firstborn, first in rank and first in importance. And Paul goes further and claims that Christ is the creator of all things. Look at verse 16. He starts by making a statement. He says, by him, by Christ, all things were created. Here is why Christ is the firstborn over all creation. He is the one by whom the whole creation was brought into existence. He is the great architect. He is the great artisan. He is the great creator God. And having made that statement about Christ's creating work, Paul speaks about the scope of his creating work. He's already said that all things were created by Christ. And he now says that things in heaven and things on earth were created by him. And he says that the things that are visible and the things that are invisible were created by him. And he says that thrones and rulers and dominions and authorities, all spiritual and political powers were created by him. And having spoken about the scope of Christ's creating work, Paul makes a summary statement about his creating work. He says that all things were created through him. And then he says, and all things were created for him. The final purpose, the final reason for the existence of all things is they exist for Christ. For his praise, his honour, his glory. Then in verse 17, Paul moves from singing about Christ and creation to singing about Christ and coherence. He starts by saying that Christ is before all things, beginning of verse 17. Now that is an ambiguous term. It can mean that Christ is before all things in terms of rank. That is, he comes before all things in importance. But it can also mean that Christ is before all things in terms of time. That he existed before anything else existed. It's probably best to take it as referring to both. That Christ is before all things in terms of rank. And before all things in terms of time. And Paul claims that in Christ. In this Christ who is before all things. All things hold together. It's an incredible statement. Paul is saying that all things hold together, all things cohere together, all things are kept together by Christ. Douglas Moo writes, without Christ, electrons would would not continue to circle nuclei, gravity would cease to work, the planets would not stay in their orbits. 
Quite simply, everything would disintegrate, everything would fall apart, everything would collapse into chaos were it not for Christ. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we can see the glorious assurance of the Christian. The glorious assurance of the Christian. That's what we see in Colossians 1. Paul is convinced that Christ is the creator of all things. And he's convinced that in Christ all things hold together. That is Paul's glorious assurance in a world that was often blighted by darkness. And in circumstances that were often discouraging. All things have been created by Christ. And in Christ all things hold together. And that is important for us to remember today. The Jesus whom we have come to focus on is the creator of all things. And in him all things hold together. In a sermon that he preached on these verses last year, John Piper said the following. Hour by hour, the reason you do not fly apart into a billion fragments and then vanish is because Christ holds you together. And that is true of everything in the universe, everything that man has ever made, every body of every man and woman and child, every mountain and ocean and cloud and supernova, all would cease to be if Christ did not hold them in being. He holds together the metal on the tanks rolling into Ukraine. He holds together the cell phones in Ukraine that connect the resistance. He holds together the pew you sit on, the clothing you wear, the food you eat, the skin that covers your bones. As your creator, you might think he is distant, having done that work some time ago. But to confess it in him, your very soul and body, millisecond by millisecond, are held in being is another matter. He is not distant. You are personally and radically dependent on Christ, even if you do not believe in him. I don't know about you, friends, but I find it to be such a comfort to be reminded that Christ is in control over everything that is going on in the world and he is in control over everything that is going on in my life. He is in control of the big things and in control of the small things. He's in control of the things that we can see and the things that we cannot see. And this morning, I want to encourage every parent in this congregation, but especially the parents of the children whom we're baptizing, to be pointing your children to this Jesus. Point them to the Jesus who created all things and in whom all things hold together. Point them to the Jesus who is in control over everything that is going on in the world, over everything that is going on in your home, and over everything that is going on in their lives. Point them to the Jesus whose supremacy is a glorious assurance to his people. The media want us to believe that everything is chaotic. Everything is confused. And the Bible is saying, Christ is in control. Point them to that Jesus. But as we consider these verses, we can also see the great activity of the Christian That's what we see again in Colossians 1. Remember, this is a hymn that Paul is either composing or quoting. And as he sings this hymn, Paul remembers and rejoices that the whole creation exists for Christ. It is for his glory. That is the great activity that Paul is engaged in. The praise, the worship, the making much of Christ. And that is important for us to remember. 
The Jesus whom we've come to focus on today is the one who is worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise. Now, I know Colin McLeod from Bath is here today and he's a football man and I hope he's not going to get up and scream. But Gavin Peacock is a former Chelsea and Newcastle footballer who's now a pastor in Canada. And a few years ago, he released his autobiography, A Greater Glory. And in the book, he makes this point that in all of us, there is a desire to praise, there is a desire to make much of something greater than ourselves. And Gavin Peacock says that for many people, that is football. And toward the end of the book, he says this, football is a great game, the best in my opinion. But if you look to football or anything else for ultimate purpose, it will not last, it will not satisfy, and it will not save you. Football is great, but Jesus is greater. Or for DJ's benefit, golf is great, but Jesus is greater. Gavin Peacock is a man who, like Paul, has discovered that the greatest activity that a person can be engaged in is the worship of Christ, making much of Jesus. And this morning, I want to encourage every parent, and especially the parents of the children whom we're baptizing, to be encouraging your children to be engaged in this great activity. Encourage them to live their lives knowing that Jesus is greater. Greater than football, greater than golf, DJ, greater than crafting, Lisa. Encourage them to live their lives knowing that Jesus is greater. And the best way that you can do this is by showing them that the public and private worship of Jesus is your great priority. In other words, your children aren't going to think that the worship of Jesus is that important if it's not the major factor in your own lives. There'd be no point in me getting up every fifth Sunday and saying, guys, it's very important to, to worship Jesus if you didn't see me for four or five weeks at a time. If I was just sitting at home, and that goes for every parent in this congregation. Encourage your children to worship Jesus And you encourage them by showing that the worship of Jesus is your great priority, both public and private. So there's the supremacy of Christ in creation. And then we have the supremacy of Christ in salvation. Look at verses 18 to 20, where Paul now focuses on the supremacy of Christ in salvation. Verse 18, Paul sings about the position that Christ occupies. He starts by speaking about Christ's position in the church. Look at the beginning of verse 18. He says that the church is a body. When Paul speaks here about the church, he's not speaking about a local congregation or a denomination. When Paul speaks about the church, he is speaking about the worldwide entity that bows the knee to the Lordship of Christ. And throughout his earlier writings to the Romans and to the Corinthians, as well as his later writings to the Ephesians and the Colossians, Paul refers to the church as a body. It's made up of many parts, many people. But all the parts, all the people make up a whole. They make up a body. And Paul says here that Christ is the head of the body. In the ancient world, the head was regarded as the governing member of the body. And referring to Christ as the head of the body, Paul's claiming that Christ occupies the prominent place, the prominent position in the church. The church 
isn't under the authority of a pope. The church isn't under the authority of a priest. The church isn't under the authority of a political figure. The church is under the authority of Christ. He occupies the prime place. And then Paul goes further and speaks not just about Christ's position in the church, but look at verse 18, his position in everything. He says that Christ is the beginning. He occupies the first place in time and rank. And he says that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. The resurrection of Christ held a central place in the preaching of the early church. Prior to Christ's resurrection, there were resuscitations where people would be raised to life, but they would just be raised to the same dying life, raised to to die again. But when Christ was raised, he was raised with the power of an endless life. He was raised to never die again. And Paul says here that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Meaning he's not the only one who will be raised in this way, but his people will also be raised. Just as he was raised on that last day. And Paul says that the purpose of Christ being the beginning and being the firstborn from the dead is so that he might be preeminent in everything. The purpose of him being the beginning and firstborn from the dead is that he might be recognised and relished in all things. The purpose of him being the beginning and firstborn from the dead is that he might be exalted, might be enjoyed as the sovereign, supreme Lord of all. First place in everything. But finally, Paul sings not just about the position that Christ occupies, but also about the peace that Christ secures. Look at verses 19 and 20. He draws his reader's attention to the deity of Christ. He speaks here about all the fullness of God, the the totality of God. And he claims that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. It's interesting that in Colossians 1, Paul writes that in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's in the past. But if you jump to Colossians 2, Paul develops this and says that in Christ... The whole fullness of God dwells bodily. That's in the present, going on into the future. In his life on earth, Jesus was the God-man. Fully God and fully man. But even in heaven, even today on heaven's throne, Jesus remains the God-man. Fully God and fully man. His incarnation never ends. That incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas, it never ends. And having drawn his reader's attention to the deity of Christ, Paul draws their attention to the death of Christ. Look at verse 20. He says that through Christ, God reconciles all things, whether on earth or in heaven, to himself. That word reconciles describes the restoration of a broken relationship. Now, we often think about Christ coming to restore the broken relationship between God and man. But Paul frequently speaks not about the broken relationship between God and man, but the broken relationship between God and the whole of his creation. 
In Romans 8, he speaks about the creation longing and groaning for redemption, for salvation, for reconciliation with God. And here we find Paul speaking about the whole cosmos, things on earth and things in heaven, being reconciled to God, being restored to God through Christ. And Paul says here that Christ accomplishes that reconciliation by making peace by the blood of his cross. The blood that flowed through and from the veins of the God-man makes peace, ends the conflict, restores the relationship between God and his creation. The sacrificial death of Christ, the sin-atoning death of Christ on the cross is the bedrock and the basis by which this reconciliation is fully and finally accomplished. And so Paul is closing this great hymn by describing the cross of Christ as the linchpin, the centerpiece for God's cosmic reconciliation program that will still take place in the future. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see the grateful attitude of the Christian. The grateful attitude of the Christian. That's what we see in Colossians 1. Paul has been meditating on the saving work of Christ. He has been marinating his mind with thoughts about the cosmic reconciliation that is found in Christ. He has been rejoicing in the one who has come to restore that broken relationship, not just between God and man, but between God and his whole creation. But he closes those elevated musings by riveting his mind, centering his attention away from the heights of the cosmos to the depths of the cross. That is the grateful attitude that we find in Paul. He's a man who never, never, never loses his admiration and appreciation that the God-man, this Jesus, this Christ, would die on a cross. And that is important for us to remember. The Jesus whom we have come to focus on today, friends, is the great reconciler. He is the one who has come to restore the broken relationship not just between God and man, but between God and his creation by making peace by the blood of his cross. He's the one who died in history for the blessing and the benefit of a, of a groaning creation. And the question is, friend, what do we think of him? Can I ask you today, friend, what do you think of this Jesus? What do we think of the one who was crucified as a common criminal on a slope outside the walls of Jerusalem? What do we think of the one who was broken, the one who was bruised, the one who was bloodied, the one who was butchered to death on a Roman cross? What do we think of him? We can illustrate it using the story of a man named John Brown. This man, John Brown, was a covenanter who lived in the 17th century. He believed in the headship of Christ over his church. And he was captured by the king's soldiers and their general, John Graham of Claverhouse. And Claverhouse wanted John Brown to be shot for his belief in the supremacy of Christ over all things, even over the king. 
And John Brown asked Claver House for an opportunity to pray, and in his prayer he committed his wife and his children to Christ. The soldiers were so moved by his prayer that they refused to shoot him when Claver House gave the order. And so Claver House took matters into his own hands and shot John Brown in the head. And then turning to John Brown's widow, he said, What do you think of your husband now? And she replied, I ever thought much good of him, and now more than ever. I ever thought much good of him, and now more than ever. Can I ask you again, friends? When you see the broken, bruised, bloodied Christ, when you see this butchered Jesus, whose sacrificial death is the basis for a long-awaited cosmic reconciliation, are you able to say, I ever thought much good of him, and now more than ever. Do you share Paul's grateful attitude? Do you share Paul's admiration and his appreciation for the one who died on a cross? Well, this morning I want to close by encouraging every parent, and especially the parents of the children whom we're baptizing, to be doing all that you can to encourage your children to have this grateful attitude. Can I encourage you, DJ, and I know Mary Ann's in the creche, and can I encourage you, Lisa, to, to take your children, not just Charlie and Mark, but all your children, take them to the slopes of Golgotha, the slopes of Calvary, on a regular basis. Take them to the place where they will see the cross of Christ. And the one who is fully God and fully man, Dying in history to reconcile a groaning creation and a glorious creator as the supreme saviour, the only saviour. Don't just tell them the stories about Moses or Joseph and say, now, now, now be a good boy like Moses, be a good boy like Joseph, be a good boy like King David. No. Take them to the slopes of Golgotha. Take them to the Jesus who died in history for the reconciliation, the restoration of the whole cosmos. Well, may the Lord bless these thoughts to us.